So tell us a little bit about uh, your book. Okay. I I wrote this book called The Horse Boy, um, which has just come out. Um, And it tells the story of my autistic son and his relationship with horses, particularly a mare called Betsy, um, who lives very close to us in Elgin, where I live, Texas, um, and how he really learned to speak through her. And then how we ended up doing something a little bit crazy and riding across Mongolia together, um, looking for healing um, for the autism. And what happened, what, what changes happened. That's, that's the story. Okay. And um, could you tell me a little bit about um, your son and going through the process of learning of, uh, about his diagnosis and coming to grips with that? As a family? Well, I mean, a lot of people listening are going through that right now. And they, there is a common experience which happens when you get the diagnosis, which is a mixture of, oh, well, at least now we know what's going on. Because, of course, before the diagnosis, there's a lot of behavioral stuff going yeah. on with your kid. But then there's this great grief that you are saying goodbye to all your parental dreams. And... Every human being that has a child, being only human, wants to project their own dreams, their ego, really, through their kid. Um, We all have pictures in our head about what we'd like to... And all that gets jettisoned. And the, the initial reaction is really one of grief. And then for me, there was even this irrational shame. Not shame of my child, but shame of myself. Like... I have these faulty genetics and I've kind of cursed this child to live as an alien on the planet because of my bad genes. And and these are irrational but understandable reactions. They last for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, once th- that has gone through a season, you're then in a position to reevaluate and start formulating new dreams. And it's those new dreams that end up taking you to some quite interesting places. Um, I, I've started reading your book I'm about halfway through now and can you describe to me your son's first interaction with this horse named Betsy yeah well I used to train horses for a living but I was actually keeping Rowan away from horses because I thought he was unsafe around them he was so random in his behaviors However, I used to always take him out into the woods behind our house. We live in the country because it would seem to calm him down when he was going through one of his sort of neurological fits that a lot of autistic kids go through. One day he got away from me. He went the the wrong direction. I was daydreaming and couldn't grab him quickly enough. He went through the fence into my neighbor's horse pasture. Sod's law that day. Of course, all the horses are grazing right there. And he literally threw himself in amongst them and on his back. And I was, (gasps) you know, I thought he was going to get trampled. Um... In fact, what happened was the boss mare, who's this notoriously grumpy old mare called Betsy, came and pushed the other horses out of the way. And then she bent her head to him and started to lick and chew. And when horses do that, that's their way of submitting. Now, I've seen horses do this to humans before in like a round pen where you're working Mm -hmm. natural horsemanship, that kind of thing. Never seen them offer that spontaneously to a human being before, let alone a babbling two-and-a-half-year-old on his back in the grass. So I knew that I was witnessing something extraordinary. However, I came to the wrong conclusion. I thought, oh, he's got this horse gene that comes down through our family, but I'll never share it with him because of his autism. Turns out I was completely wrong. 
So, and then how did you go from his interest and connection to horses to this trek <laughs> through Mongolia? Because I'm completely and- <laughs> mad. <laughs> um, I come from a long line of completely mad people. Uh, I do, actually. But, well, here's what happened. It's not quite as random as it seems. Um, Rowan's language started... It was the moment he got on Betsy, the moment I realized, okay... I should stop projecting my own agenda onto this. He clearly wants to get on the horse. He kept going back and back and back and saying, horse, horse, horse. So I, I put a saddle on the horse, got up, and he, it was like the cork came out of the bottle with his language. It was extraordinary. And that same year that he was diagnosed, 2004, same year he met Betsy, um, I have this other career in, in human rights. My family's all South African, Zimbabwean. I'm a white African, um, hence the, the long line of crazy people. And uh, all the tribes that I work with down there on their land rights issues, I help them get title to their ancestral land, um, have a very strong system of traditional healing. And uh, after you've worked with these people for 10 years or more, you just get very used to seeing this stuff all the time. And indeed seeing it be quite effective because these people live a long way from anywhere in very harsh environments and they don't really have the time to do anything that doesn't have practical merit for them. Do you know what I mean? It's like... It's, it's a bit life or death out there. They use Western medicine when they can, but it's often not available. So they rely on their traditions. And their tradition is to use a state of trance or altered consciousness to um, sort of, in a way, look inside the person and pull out what needs to be pulled out. That sounds completely crazy when you come from the West. Although a lot of people, I think, here do understand sort of the power of prayer. And it's, it's, it's basically that. It is basically the power of prayer. Anyhow, um, that same year that Rowan was um, diagnosed, I had to bring a delegation from Southern Africa of Sano Bushmen to the United Nations to protest against the loss of their land. Um, while the, Some of them were, were healers in their culture. While they were here in the U.S., they met Rowan. They casually offered to pray over him and say, oh, sure, why not, you know. Well, for the few days that he was with them, Rowan started to lose some of his behaviors. He started to uh, lose some of his obsessive, repetitive behaviors. He started to point, which was a a milestone he'd missed, a very important one um, in terms of child development, perspective taking and so on. Um, He began to use some complex language and show his toys to people and so on. Kristen, my wife, and I were kind of, wow, you know. Now, the moment the Bushman left, he fell back into his autism again. But by then, we were riding Betsy every day, and his language was coming. So I couldn't help but, you know, wonder, oh, look, okay, we're trying every Western therapy under the sun. And we we continue to even today. We never stopped doing Western therapy. We're not extremists like Mm -hmm. that. But it's just that he had this radical and positive response to horses and these shamans. So I thought, well, is there a place on the planet that combines these two things? You get on the internet, you know. Oh, look, there is. It's Mongolia. <laughs> it's, um, that's where the horse comes from, where the horse was domesticated. Shamanism along with Buddhism is the state religion there, which is amazing because both were suppressed under communism. Um, all their traditional healing is taken up with horse motifs. So, for example, metaphors. So, for example, when the shaman is drumming to go into trance, they call that riding the wind horse. And, so. and I just thought, it's a no-brainer. We should take Rowan there. And maybe this a prolonged contact maybe will bring about some change. And even if there is no change, this is my other thought, everyone had been telling me that our lives would shut down because of the autism. And I was thinking, what if they have it backwards? And what if I have it backwards? What if this, is, this autism is, in fact, the greatest adventure of all? 
And what if through this autism, not in spite of the autism, but because of the autism, it takes us to do something we would never, ever have done normally as a family and brings us closer? Isn't that valid in, a, in and of itself, you know? So my wife didn't share my opinion at all. Um, she doesn't really like horses very much, and she was very rationally pointed out, you know, we have a tantruming incontinent kid we're going to go in the middle of the Mongolian steppe with no washing machines and we're going to somehow cope and keep this kid on so she was very resistant um, but a couple of years later and Rome was a bit too young anyway right at the start of the thing um, she had seen so much improvement in him with the riding and she had been there when the shamans worked on him originally so her attitude was uh, what she said was well okay if we go and it's a complete disaster. I get to say, I told you so forever. And if there's change, well, then I benefit. So it's win-win for me either way. <laughs> <laughs> so we went. We went to Mongolia, 2007. To give our audience kind of an idea of autism and how... Um, what does it entail? Yeah, what does it entail? When you were deciding to make this trip, how much of a challenge it is? And was for your family. Well, I mean, autism, particularly in the early years of autism, the behaviors are so dysfunctional. The screaming, the tantruming, the sensory issues, the the fluorescent light that we're sitting under in the studio right now would have completely set Rowan off. Um, That's why you tend to see meltdowns with autistic kids in supermarkets or schools or places like that because they're in these semi-industrial environments that their overstimulated nervous system cannot cope with. Um, So it's very challenging. Um, And, you know, quite traumatic for everybody. But that was my reasoning, partly. It was like, well, okay, how difficult can it be? I mean, I've had... He likes to be on a horse. He likes to be in nature. That's what we're going to go do. I've had terrible car rides to the grocery store with Rowan. I've had him, you know, tantrum on a city street and have to, like, restrain him from hurting himself, screaming so loudly that it silences a jackhammer crew. I've had people want to call the emergency services because they think the kid is having a fit, you know. So, And this is all in my hometown. So, really, by the time you, you're a couple of years into an autism parenthood, you're pretty seasoned. You're pretty... You're a veteran. You've been in the trenches for a while. You know, if there's one thing it teaches you, it's how to cope. You know what I mean? But, and there's lots of parents listening out there right now who are going through this who know exactly what I'm talking about. But when we got out to Mongolia, um, initially, um, I'd had about I'd had about eight months to put the trip together, and I having been a journalist for many years and so on and working in Africa, I know how to put these kinds of trips together. I know how to contact an outfitter and set up the logistics. But when we got there, you know, you sort of get off the plane, you look at the, you go, oh, big place, isn't it? You know, and I remember the first day we were sort of about to set off into the great interior on horseback thinking, what am I doing? What am I doing? And there were many points on that trip where I thought I'd made a huge mistake. Um, In the first big ritual, about nine shamans had come in from all over the country to heal Rowan. Um, He initially hated it. It was overstimulating for him. He couldn't cope with it, the drumming, the noise. I got whipped with rawhide. So did Kristen, my wife. She was made to wash her um, downstairs with vodka um, to cleanse her womb. You know, it was... 
crazy in many ways. You know, but then halfway through that ritual, something shifted in Rowan and he started loving it and giggling and joking and laughing and trying to tickle the shamans and grab their drumsticks and stuff. And right at the end of that ceremony, he turned to this little Mongolian boy who was there with the crowd. They were all there with their families and opened his arms and said, Mongolian brother. And this is why I'm so glad we had a camera. Um, because these kinds of stories are kind of almost unbelievable if you haven't got the sort of proof with a capital P. Yeah. Um, and and hugged this kid. And that w- was a little boy called Tomo, who was the son of our guide, Tulga. So Tulga, seeing the interaction between the boys, this is Rowan's first ever friend in the first ritual, brought him along on the trip with us. So it was two dads, two kids. So initially, even on the first day I saw, there was this kind of massive thing happened that had never happened before. The, so then we went across Mongolia um, and we eventually got up to the border with Russia in, in Siberia, where Siberia comes down into northern Mongolia. And we were going in search of a group of people called the Duka or the reindeer herders, whose shamans are by reputation the most effective. And um, the you have to go 12,000 foot up into the, their summer pastures where it's cool enough for reindeer in the summer and it's a hell of a business to get up there on a horse but we we did it and the shaman up there ghost worked on Rowan for three days and at the end of the three days he said um, okay Rowan will be gradually less autistic till he's nine but he said the stuff that really drives him crazy r- drives you crazy the the uh, incontinence and the tantruming these will end like now and I was pretty sceptical. And not just sceptical, um, like guarding my heart. I really didn't want to get my heart broken. And we come an awful long way, you know. And even with all the um, background I'd had, you know, working with tribes like this and healers like this in the past, I was unused to them saying something quite that unequivocal. But about 25 hours after we rode down the mountain... Rowan squatted down and did his first intentional bowel movement and cleaned himself. And it was literally like the choirs of angels coming out of the heavens. I mean, (laughs) you know, Kristen and I just, it was like, get out of jail free card. Uh, Extraordinary. And I'd say from that point on, we had maybe six tantrums of any note spread over three weeks. That would normally have been about half a day's worth. And by the time we got back to America, they were gone completely gone then of course i was worried that he'd regress but he didn't he he continued so he 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 got back and he he started uh making friends with all the kids in the neighborhood he you know his academics shot forward and you know these dysfunctions are gone so rowan was not cured of his autism horses do not cure autism shamans do not cure autism i'm not talking about cure at all here but what did happen what rowan's still autistic but what did happen was that rowan was healed by whatever means of these three key dysfunctions that were so impairing his quality of life and ours, his incontinence, his tantruming, and his being cut off from his peers. When we got back, we got back with a child who was still autistic, but without these dysfunctions. And now he's at the point where the, the autism really almost comes across as a sort of charming personality quirk rather than a disorder. And my whole relationship with autism and what autism means has changed. And my my dreams for Rowan are now somewhat more in line with my original dreams as a father. So 
I would expect people to be pretty sceptical about this story. We have made a documentary. We did take a camera, and these changes happened on camera, fortunately. That will be on general release in cinemas in the fall, in September and October. The book is out right now, The Horse Boy. But sceptical or not, I'm just really thrilled at the outcome. And it's not that every family should pick up and go to Mongolia. Um, that was very specific to us. It's more about seeing where the child's interests lie, particularly a child that's nonverbal, and he was nonverbal at that point and can't tell you. What is the kid trying to show you that they're interested in and follow that? So if Rowan's interest had been steam trains and bicycles, this story would have been about steam trains and bicycles. I'd have, I'd have taken a, a rail journey across India with him or something or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But an adventure that pulls you together based around what the child is trying to show you. That's universal. And then in terms of what you can do in your own backyard, well, a town like Waco, you're surrounded by very beautiful nature. There's excellent therapeutic riding places around here. There's a place called Reach, um, which is local to here, which, you know, serves special needs children with horses. Um, there are things that one can do right here without needing to get on a plane and go to Mongolia, you know. That immersion in nature that calms the children's neurology down. Um, and it does seem that there's been some science done on um, what this effect of horses is. Apparently any repetitive rocking motion that... And apparently Baylor is doing some research into this mm -hmm, right now. Mm -hmm. um, that causes you to constantly find and refind your balance opens up the learning receptors of the brain. Now, granted, that could also be on a trampoline, on a swing, other things. But I think when you add just how cool it is to be on the back of a horse getting that, it, and plus the living animal, it adds a whole other thing. I also recently found out that that same motion causes the body to produce oxytocin, which is the feel-good hormone. Mm -hmm. So you suddenly have a kid who's in a, an environment where they're sort of intrinsically motivated to be and to learn. So now I have some clues into why Rowan's language really shot forward. And now we run, we ourselves run an equine therapy place outside of Elgin called uh, the New Trails Center. And it's, there's a website for it, which is horseboyfoundation.org, um, where we are now doing this for other kids. And, and we find a pretty consistent set of responses. We use other animals as well, not just the horses, but the, the, the kids, it really seems to bring the language out. Going back to your story in Mongolia, in Western culture, Western society, we always want like a logical explanation. Yes, we think we're very logical yeah. people, <laughs> even though we do terribly illogical things all the time. <laughs> and I mean, and you said yourself that you, in some ways, didn't want to believe what the shamans were saying in the hopes that you were well let's say it's more ambiguous than that it's not that i didn't want to believe it's that healthy skepticism is always healthy whether you're going to see your doctor your lawyer mm -hmm. your accountant you know whoever's telling you something um but there's a difference between healthy skepticism and being so lodged in skepticism that you can't see anything but your own prejudices and there's also the other end of the spectrum where you're so credulous that you believe everything. You don't want to be on either end of those extremes because neither of those are useful. Our experience tells us that real life is usually somewhere in the middle. And ambiguity and the unknown, enigmas, well, autism itself is an enigma. No one can really 
define what autism is or what causes it. We don't know yet. Any autism parent who's out there dealing with it is dealing with an enigma every day. And the same as when you work with horses, say, we don't really understand how a horse's mind works. We don't understand fully why we're getting these responses from the horse, but we get them and so we use them. But we're dealing with those enigmas every day. Similarly, in our daily experience, um, we know what motivates most of us, although we don't like to admit it because we, you know, we're, we sort of have that, that northern Euro inher- European heritage of diffidence. But most of us are motivated by the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of love. I mean, it's even enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. But what is happiness? We don't know. What is love? We don't know. But we do know that most of the decisions that we make every day, no matter how logical and sceptical we consider ourselves, are based around this. So, in fact, most of us live at least 50% of the time in the illogical or the irrational or the non-rational because that's real life. You know, we haven't really got a choice in the matter. So this, in a way, is just an extension of that. Um, But it's not about credulity or belief. You know, like I say, if all that had happened was that we had come back from Mongolia having had an amazing family adventure out in nature together in a way that you'd never have thought we could have because of the autism, and in fact, we did it because of the autism. Well, that in itself would have been magical enough. Mm-hmm. The fact that Rowan did come back healed, not cured, of these dysfunctions was so thrilling. And, you know, my wife is a psychologist at UT. She, she teaches, she's a professor. She's a scientist. And she's been asked several times, well, what do you think? You know, are you a believer? She, and she sort of says the same thing. It's not about belief or disbelief. I'm thrilled at the fact that my kid, you know, uses the toilet and makes friends and is academically ahead and doesn't tantrum anymore. Um, I can't say exactly what it is, but I'm comfortable with not knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like as a family making this track in what ways did it bring you all together it seemed as though when you were in Mongolia your relationship with your son became more intimate well I'd actually say Betsy helped that happen before that 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 you know, we we started living in the saddle together, sort of Rowan and me for the first for the two years leading so the horses definitely brought Rowan and I much, much closer, but a long time before we got to Mongolia. But us as a family, that is a good point. I mean, fully 80% of autism marriages break up. And if there are fault lines in your relationship, then something like autism is, and the challenges it puts you under are going to split them wide open for sure. Now, whether what you do with that, that's every family's thing. But to go and do a... And Kristen and I definitely had our challenges, definitely. Um, you know, because one of the great problems about having an autistic kid, particularly one that tantrums a lot and is pooing all the time, is that you can't get your neighbor's 18-year-old daughter to casually come and watch them, you know, while you go out to a movie. Um, you're talking paid professionals. You're talking, you know, a very different type of setup. Costs a lot of money. It's very difficult to organize. We live in the country. Our families are, my family's in Europe. Kristen's family's up in Seattle. You know, the grandmothers are not there. Lots of people are in this position. Um, you can end up eating each other alive because you've got nowhere else to put the exhaustion and the frustration and so on. Good thing about married to a psychologist, she came up with a very good idea. She said, let's be each other's babysitters. And we would give each other a dedicated night off a week, at least one, where, because we live about 25 miles out, we have lots of friends in Austin. We'd say, go out in Austin. Forget for an evening that you're dealing with all this. Hang with the friends, crash on their couch, come back in the morning, come back fresh for the fight. 
you know, but have some time to let off steam somewhere else. Um, because we, we had started to fight quite badly and that really helped us. But then when we got, when we were in Mongolia, definitely, I mean, a wilderness trip like that as a family brings you very, very close. Um, you really operate as a team. And when we got back, because Rowan was now so functional, it allowed us to pay attention to our marriage in a way that we hadn't been able to before. So it's funny, the first thing that happened when we got back to Austin was we checked into to couples therapy so that we could address, you know, all the stuff between us, which all couples do have, um, that we had had to keep sort of under wraps, you know, for the last five or six years because we were just so busy dealing with Rowan that there wasn't really any op- opportunity to deal with us. Mm-hmm. And that was a very healing process for us, you know. Any anyone listening, you know, anyone who's been in a relationship for ten years plus, um, you know, there's always stuff to address, and it's almost like the longer you together, the more stuff there is to address. Um, and we suddenly had the chance to do that, and that was healing for us. Your experience with horses and working with horses, as I understand, you you're a horse trainer and mm. a rider as well, and. Do you think that helped you understand your son? Yeah, definitely. Um, There's a fantastic book out there called Animals in Translation by a woman called Dr. Temple Grandin, who is autistic, but she's also the head of animal sciences at Colorado State University and um, a best-selling author. And she's an extraordinary woman because when she was three, she was rocking back and forth, eating the wallpaper, completely nonverbal. And she's still very autistic. Um, she's been very supportive of this horse boy project Um, she says that autistic people and animals have a very similar way of thinking which is that they think visually in pictures and then so for an autistic person to learn language it's a little bit like you or I learning a second language so it's going to be a slower process and, and we're having to sort of translate in our head how to say that thing in Spanish before we actually articulate it in Spanish so that process of rolling out information and then allowing some time to digest the information and to repeat things and to be patient like that is very much a part of horse training because a horse does not speak a human language doesn't know what you're doing half the time when it's a young horse has to has to move away from the physical pressure or whatever it is that you're using to hopefully stumble into the right response and then you reward it and then it learns that with a, with an autistic child they often have no understanding of what you're trying to tell them so it's a similar trial and error process and if you're used to that kind of trial and error process and are not impatient I think it's helpful um, so definitely horse training but what's interesting now is Rowan is emerging as a horse trainer and he's a better horse trainer than me and I shamelessly and flagrantly use him to help me train my horses now because the horses go better when he's on their back. So if I've got a young horse um, that I'm trying to teach to do something, it's sort of got to be a quiet young horse, but if I've got a horse that I'm trying to teach something, I'll often put Rowan on the horse's back while I'm doing that because the horse just goes better when it, Rowan's on his back. And, <laughs> and Rowan himself has now picked up on certain verbal cues and, he's, he's, and he, he seems to be able to socialize any animal. That's his real strength, one of his real talents. Is we have this chicken, for example. You know, I can't get near it. My wife can't get it. He can grab it, put it on his shoulder and he says, it's a pirate macaw. 
Ar <laughs> like this, and the ch- and the chicken will sit on his shoulder for as long as, it, and you can see the chicken's like, I don't really know why I'm sitting on this child's shoulder, and I kind of feel, oh, you know, you can see the process of confusion going on in the chicken's mind, but somehow it stays on his shoulder. And I've seen this time and again with him. Um, so animals and autistic people do seem to have not every single one, but there does seem to be a generality there, yes, of 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 certain kinship. You said. That you're, you feel that after this trip to Mongolia, that your son had been healed mm. but not cured. Can you describe what what you I mean, mean by, by that? that? Yeah, I think I think there's a difference between healing and cure. Cure suggests that you take the thing out. So, say for example, you had cancer and you wanted to be cured of the cancer. You're talking about um, taking that cancer out of the body and it not returning. That would be a, a cure. So if you were talking about someone being cured of autism, you would say that person is no longer autistic. Well, that's not the case here. Rowan is still autistic. And his essence and who he is, is tied up with being autistic. So if you took the autism out of him, he'd no longer be Rowan, he'd be somebody else. I'm not even sure it would be possible to do that. That was not what I was after. And I don't think that would have been a, a realistic thing to be after. What I was after was healing from certain dysfunctions. So say, for example, you had a cancer, but it was managed and it was manageable and you got a much longer lease of life. And the symptoms, the the gross or the sicknesses or whatever that were afflicting you alongside it were no longer afflicting you. And somehow the medication you were on was managing the thing. and Your quality of life was returned to you, but you were still sort of dealing with the fact that you had to have treatments. Well, that would be more, that would be more like healing because you, you would be healed of the things that were making life impossible for you that were related to the cancer. The cancer would still be there. However, no one died of autism ever, you know, so it's, uh, it's a bit unfair on autism to put it in that same category. Mm. But I think for a lot of parents in the early stages, if you had asked me 18 months into the diagnosis, was I interested in a cure, I'd have said, hell yeah. Um, by the time... I was two years into the process, I realized, no, actually, there's great gifts here. This is who Rowan is. And it's not so much that this is a person with a disorder, it's that this is a different type of person. And um, there are some great gifts here, which if I get too hung up on the idea of cure, I will miss, and I won't even know who my child is. So I need to abandon that idea. And, but healing of a dysfunction, absolutely. He, you know, healing of tantrums, healing of incontinence, healing of being cut off from the peers. Yes, that 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 happened. So you felt that, I guess, those aspects of his life were hindering him, or in some ways lessened his quality of life. No, no and question. That... He was suffering terribly. You know, when those neurological firestorms go off in the kid's body that cause the tantrums, for the child, it's terrifying. You know, the the, the screaming fits that are happening are not happening out of rage. They're happening out of distress and trauma. Mm-hmm. So he, for, for a child to be freed of that, healed of that, is, it's immense. Can you describe what Rowan is like today and what your family life is like today? Just well, maybe a typical day? or It's different to the point that now I could pick up this Blackberry that is in and we could call him up. And what he would say over the phone, he's still coping with phone, but we could talk about what he's up to today. And he academically is about two grades ahead. He's seven. He's a he's a so he's a first grader, but he he he's at about fourth grade for reading and about third grade for math. So he's quite extraordinary in that regard. He's still got some social catching up to do. Um, 
and he still mixes up his participles a bit i as opposed to you and things like that um but and his his way of looking at the world is fundamentally different to your my way of looking at the world no question and that's expressed in how he speaks and what his interests are but in terms of would he be able to uh grow up and get a job or um get married and have a kid or have a romantic relationship or something i'm starting to think yeah actually i think so it'll be under slightly different terms perhaps but i th- i think so actually and he's a very he's already a productive member of society i mean he's 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 sort of emerging i'm kind of in awe of him really as this sort of ambassador for autism and he's only seven you know and he and a lot of autistic people whether they're kids or adults are strangely egoless um and that is a huge gift um rowan doesn't compare himself to other people or worry what people think about him or am i faster bigger stronger you know more clever more this you know which if you remember back to when you were about seven years old you were already going through all that stuff imagine if someone had waved a magic wand and taken that little voice away that was always telling you you weren't quite matching up you weren't quite good enough that you always had to imagine if that would be imagine how happy you'd have been (laughs) i'm a bit envious of rowan in that regard and i can see that that is a real gift and there's this other gift which is when you're someone who clearly has as massive and overactive an ego as I do, you know, when you're around someone who's quite egoless, it's very restful because the ego isn't being reflected back at you all the time. So you become, oddly enough, less taken up with your own, even if only for while you're with that child. It's like you get a break from yourself. Um, that's quite a gift. So I guess going off of that to what are some of the the things that Rowan has taught you? Well, that's one of them. The, the, he shows me by example how to live in the moment and not be completely tied up with your ego all the time. Um, he's made me a better horseman. He's made me a better writer. He's made me more adventurous because this, it was a leap of faith to do this trip. Um, he's made me a better listener because he couldn't tell me verbally initially what, where he wanted to be. He could only show me physically by going to the horse. Um, so now every parent obviously goes through a baptism of fire and becomes more patient than they were before they were a parent. <laughs> um, that's a common experience. So it's really just another type of version of the same types of gifts that everybody gets from being a parent. It's just... And there is also this thing about being comfortable with living with something you don't understand and not feeling you have to control all the time, realizing that you you need to play your part. You need to be doing the therapies. We still do all the Western therapies, by the way. Never stop doing those. But you don't have to feel that you have to be in control of everything or you're a complete failure which a lot of us are taught from childhood that we need to do. It's very, very, very restful to be able to put that down sometimes. And having an autistic kid almost forces you to. So I'm grateful to him for that. I guess what I find is a very interesting concept is, I guess, coming to terms with 
the not knowing. Mm. And when you were in Mongolia, you described that some of you, whether or not the shaman's ritual would bring about healing, mm. that was something that you had to let go and you had mm. to just say, you know, there are some things that we can't know. Um, what kind of, I guess, process or what went through your mind as you were coming to terms with what we can and cannot know and kind of letting go of that control? Well, okay, it's interesting because by the time I got out to Mongolia, you know, it was 2007, I'd been dealing with a diagnosed autistic child for three years. Before that, there'd been all sorts of behavioral oddities. that were. So I guess you could say that long before we went to Mongolia, I had had to become comfortable with dealing with this enigma called autism that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, when you first get the diagnosis, it's you and the Internet. And there's all this information out there. Much of it is conflicting. It's very case by case. There's a huge spectrum of types of autism. Um, So where your kid is on the spectrum is very different to where someone else's kid is on the spectrum. And you get very used to, after a year or so has gone by, going from, I'm going to fix it, to a certain acceptance and a longer-term view. And so long before I got out to Mongolia, I had um, ceased to... I, I I think Rowan had taken that urge to control things and fix things and understand things rationally away from me. Um, non-attachment is a good thing to cultivate because no matter how attached we get to something, the changing process of life, we know this frequently takes those things away. Now, fortunately, it often replaces them with something else. But that process of when something passes is often so painful and traumatic for us. Um, The gift of being a special needs parent or something like that is you you go through that process in spades. So I think by the time I got out to Mongolia, I was de facto less attached to even the idea of healing, even though I was actively in pursuit of it. Mm -hmm. That in itself is a paradox. But you get used to living this sort of paradoxical situation, this enigmatic thing called autism, because it's just so much your daily reality by that point. It is not something that you can empirically understand. So with your son's diagnosis, this also spurred you to create an organization yeah, um, which is, allows the interaction of, of autistic children and horses. Um, can you describe to me your organization yeah. and your mission and what you hope to accomplish? It's called the Horse Boy Foundation. Um, our mission is to bring horses and kids together, both special needs and not special needs, who might not otherwise have access to each other, um, particularly kids from the cities and so forth, um, kids from backgrounds where they couldn't normally afford equine therapy. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the horses are really just an excuse to create a social nexus where these kids can come together and with a common interest. We do do th- equine therapy as well. And then we also have 15 acres where the kids can just run around and be. Because most of these kids are in all kinds of therapies. 
and don't get much time to just be in nature, which is in itself a therapy. Mm-hmm. So we can offer that, and we do it completely by donation. So if 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 a family has is really on the skids, you know, no worries, no payment. If it's five bucks, fine. If it's ten bucks, fine. If it's fifty bucks, fine. And it can be for as long or as little as the child wants to be out there. So instead of just sort of showing up and saying, okay, it's just your half an hour riding lesson and now you get off. It's very open-ended. Once the kid is out there, they can stay two, three hours. We don't mind. Mm-hmm. The New Trail Centre, we started it um, in about October of last year. Um, we've had our first six months of operations. We readily admit that we do not know what we're doing. I want all parents, when they come out, to understand and accept that. There is no program. It's very, very tailored to what the kid and the horse or the kid and the pygmy goat or the kid and the bunny or the kid and the... We even have a python for some of the kids that have sensory issues. They love Some of the kids love the reptiles. It's funny. Um, we've had great verb, you know, strides in kids that were nonverbal talking when they were around the snake. You know, So we roll all sorts of stuff out there at them and time on the trampoline and all that. Play sets and we also have no drop-off. Families have to bring their kid out and it's time for the family as well. Mm-hmm. So we all just sort of keep going in this very nebulous sort of a way. Where And I think keeping it a bit nebulous allows us to do what I did initially with Rowan and Betsy, which was I was forced to change my attitude about, I'm a human being, you're a horse, I'm going to get on your back, tell you what to do, and this is what it's going to be. Now, I still do ride horses that way, obviously, when I'm just riding myself, although I'm much, much more flexible in my approach now. but And I'm better able, I think, to listen to what the horse is telling me because of Rowan. But each kid has a way of showing you and their relationship with the horse. And if you are willing to stand back and listen for a bit, you will be able to implement a program for that child, which is constantly changing, but just simply by watching the interaction between them and that particular horse. So it's very individualized. Very individualized, yeah. We have about 20 to 20 kids a week coming out. Yeah. And we're a 501c3 if anybody (laughs) wants to donate to us. (laughs) Yes, all tax deductible. (laughs) Horseboyfoundation.org. So for someone who will pick up your book and read it, what is the main message that you would like your readers to get from your story? Listen to your child. Don't be afraid to think outside the box. Don't be afraid to dream. And dreams are achievable. I think that's that's all I'm trying to say. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it really has.